At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. I'm producer Cameron Costa, and here's the news on today's episode. The Federal Reserve beginning day one of its two-day meeting. Will they cut rates, raise them, or hold steady? Allianz chief economic advisor Mohamed Alarian says they'll prepare to be prepared. Their job is not done, and they're going to maintain optionality. And most importantly, I think they are not going to validate the notion that rates are coming down in March. They're going to keep their options wide open. And Nikki Haley still hosting fundraisers with billionaires, but Puck's Teddy Schleifer is asking why. No one that supports Nikki Haley at this point honestly thinks that she has a strong chance of being the nominee. That it was just ludicrous at this point. Those conversations, plus Tom Brady has made a deal, and Elon Musk reports success at Neuralink. But first, an interesting AI perspective from Microsoft CEO. I love the enlightened view of copyright law, one that no longer applies. It's Tuesday, January 30th, and Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue it, please. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Mike Santoli. Joe and Andrew are both off today. OpenAI announcing that it is teaming up with the nonprofit Common Sense Media on a new push to help teens understand how to use artificial intelligence in a safe way. Common Sense has been working to develop an AI ratings and review system for parents, kids, and educators to better understand AI's risks and benefits. Sticking with OpenAI, Microsoft CEO speaking out about the New York Times lawsuit against the two companies as part of his recent exclusive interview with NBC News's Lester Holt. I do want to ask you about the New York Times lawsuit um, against against your partner, uh, OpenAI, and yourself about the idea of using their content, using New York Times content to train AI. I know it's a, it's a legal open case and you can only say so much about it, but it does kind of open a, th- a thought about where this information comes from and who ultimately benefits. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things uh, that is very good, going to be very, very important is both what is the copyright protection as well as what is fair use in a world where there is transformative new technology. Uh, I think that that's really where uh, the copyright laws uh, have to essentially now be interpreted for what is a new transformation technology. We have done this in the past. I'm sure we'll come out and with the right set of guidelines on what is used for training. That's one thing. That's the transformation side of it. And of course, it's clear that you can't just use copyrighted material and regurgitate anything. Uh, And so those are two very distinct issues. I think we'll, you know, know, the courts will opine on it and I'm sure we'll come out. And in fact, if you look at, you know, what Japan is doing and other countries are also doing, which is how to think about copyright in an enlightened way in such a, so that this new technology can be developed. In fact, new competitors can be introduced. 
while at the same time protecting copyright. Okay, an enlightened way of looking at copyrighted material, meaning it no longer applies because I have something I want to use I, it for? I get, if I'm interpreting it right, he's probably saying that copyright law means you can't republish something else or can't use it in a commercial way, but if you're using it to train to train software, something that I'm then going to sell to someone. And it's not going to be transparent. Of course. And I do think that you, know, you have to. <laughs> I think there's a big distinction. It's one thing yeah. to be training it for altruistic purposes. Sure. It's another thing to turn around and then say, I'm training my AI on this comes, and then I'm going to charge it. It all comes it. down to let's figure it out. You know what I mean? Right. Let's and, just figure out what the licensing is going to have to be. And here. I think that comes back to OpenAI's CEO, Sam Altman, recently revealing that his firm had been in talks with the Times for paying it for the publications of data before news of this lawsuit came out. So yeah. this is all a negotiating strate right. strategic sort of plan to see where they come down, how much you're going to pay for it. Right. Or at least an acknowledgement paid. that this is part of the things you have to sort out. Yeah, but it, they, they, I love this, the, the enlightened view of copyright law, one that no longer applies. Right. Well, <laughs> I'm sure that's, uh, I'm sure law, you know, lawyers have influenced how he's <laughs> characterizing it at this yeah. point. Well, wait, the other way, think, by the way, the idea of open AI training kids and educators yeah, how yeah. to use this. I mean, I think that's pretty important. I, Every kid I know, the reason they're using this is to write their papers. Shortcuts, for yeah, right? absolutely. <laughs> and, yeah. and, to, and that's something that schools are going to have to figure out. It's like when calculators were invented. Yep. Are you allowed to use them for math or not? Do you get stupid if you don't learn to write yourself to that's do right. some of these yeah. things? So, bring big back, questions. Bring back the blue books where you write the exams. <laughs> right. No calculators, no computers, no nothing. Well, some serious moves to get workers back to the office. IBM sending a company-wide message to managers who are still working remotely, move near an office or leave the company. That's according to a memo sent earlier this month that was viewed by Bloomberg. It said all managers must immediately report to an office or a client location at least three days a week, regardless of current work location status. And it said it's going to be using badge access data to take attendance. Those who don't live close enough to commute are required to relocate by the beginning of August. That memo said face-to-face -face interactions make workers more productive, innovative, and better able to serve clients. IBM said last week that it expects to cut an unspecified number of jobs this year. And, and maybe one of the most pointed parts of this is targeting managers. It's yeah. kind of hard to manage people if you yourself are not in the office. And even tougher for managers who work for home to try and get their employees to work yes. in the office. If you're not in the office, good luck with that. Yeah, I mean, if, if a company is on a big kind of efficiency push anyway, you can measure contributions the way you couldn't before. What's striking to me about IBM being the, the, the source of this is I remember 20 plus years ago, IBM was very early in, you know, that hoteling trend where you yeah. kind of didn't have a base office. You just kind of went where you had to go, clients or another IBM office. And, and also the kind of no set vacation days, no set sick days. They were trying to be very flexible in terms of workplace setup way before the pandemic. Look, this is something I think we said for a long time that all the work from home stuff would be great and would be allowed until you had a tighter labor yeah, market. Yeah, exactly. And if you were looking at layoffs, we've seen time or a softer again. labor market. Yeah, or a softer, exactly. yeah, yeah. If you're looking at layoffs, those are going to be the first people you target because it's easier to lay somebody off right. who you don't see every day and have interactions with. Um, yeah. And they're going to be the last ones to get promoted. This, this may take a long time to work its way out. And I'm not saying everybody's going to work for from, home, for, from home for forever. Right. I, I think people who are highly sought after will still get to be able to bend yeah. the rules. Um, and when you're, or if you're, let's say, 
a charitable foundation and you, you're not paying people as much. It's didn't part of your we, compensation. When I, I was here not long ago, didn't we have the CEO of Haines Celestial on talking about how they were making it their kind of competitive advantage in recruiting is allowing you to work from home. So some companies are going to go yeah. the other way and right. say, well, we're happy to have you do it. Rather rather than a pay raise, I'll let you do these things. Right. And we want to make sure we attract that talent. Yeah. It's, a, it's a good way to do it because people have gotten used to the flexibility, particularly if you have kids at home. For sure. But. IBM saying move in six months in toward uh, commuting distance. Maybe or bring else. some existing home sales back on the market. That's probably good. Elon Musk's Neuralink startup implanted its first device in a human for the first time on Sunday. In a post on X, Musk said that the patient is recovering well and initial results show promising neuron spike detection. The company is developing a brain implant that aims to help patients with severe paralysis control external technologies using only neural signals. It hopes to one day help patients with degenerative diseases like ALS use the implant to communicate uh, or access social media by moving cursors and typing with their minds. It's really cool stuff. Um, yeah. The idea that this might happen, I think they're also gonna be working for people who have spinal cord injuries yeah. and trying to make all of these things. It's, it's fascinating. Um, I can't keep track of the developments and Musk is keeping track of them by running all these different companies. So it's, it's, it's a little bit dizzying that it, this it is. is all happening I mean, at once. And I don't know how it fits into existing research in this area or anything yeah. else. For the so. criticism he receives, though, to be yeah. doing this, to be working on, to be pioneering EVs, to be right. you know, at the front of these rocket launches and everything with the communications with the satellites sure. that they put up there, you got to give them credit for success. For, for, for catalyzing a lot of that yeah. stuff, sure. Seven-time Super Bowl champion Tom Brady agreeing to merge his nutrition and apparel companies, TB12 and the Brady brand, with the training company No Bull. As part of that deal, Brady will become the number two shareholder. No Bull is a fitness brand that was bought in July by former beverage giant Mike Ripoli. The uh, new company will serve as a footwear, apparel, and wellness brand. Brady says that he plans to build on the No Bull brand with his own loyal fan base. I was very fortunate in my own career to impact different communities of people um, in a way that was really authentic to me. And speaking with Mike and getting to know Mike over the years, we share so many similar beliefs and values. And I thought it was the best opportunity for, for, for myself and the brands that I've been a part of to make a huge difference. Tom Brady speaking there. Obviously, it was Mike Rapoli on, on the other side of him. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, billionaires on Wall Street are still fundraising for presidential hopeful Nikki Haley. Journalist and Puck founding partner Teddy Schleifer says all this effort might be off base. It's no surprise that, you know, the billionaires of the Republican Party are not in touch with the base voter of the Republican Party. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. 
Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC Live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Mike Santoli along with Becky Quick. Joe and Andrew are off this morning. Tonight, Wall Street billionaires from Stan Druckenmiller to Ken Langone are co-hosting a fundraiser for Nikki Haley's presidential campaign in New York City as part of her fundraising efforts leading up the primary in her home state of South Carolina. Joining us right now is Puck's Teddy Schleifer. And uh, Teddy, this is a pretty long road. She may still be able to get some money uh, from the billionaire class at this point, but her route, her path to getting to the nomination looks pretty difficult if she doesn't pull off some huge upstate in her home state. Sure. I mean, all these fundraising events that she has over the next two weeks, which are 17 events, which begin tonight or begin yet last night uh, in New York, uh, are all based on the premise that money is going to matter here. Right. Which is obviously uh, highly disputable, uh, to say the least. But her belief is that she needs to raise a ton of money to do well in South Carolina and then really to do extraordinarily well or at least be extraordinarily competitive on Super Tuesday. And these are, you know, a bunch of contests across the country right after South Carolina where money really could matter because Nikki Haley is going to need to go up on TV. She's not going to have time to campaign in, say, Texas or in other kind of expensive Super Tuesday states. So the relationship between the fundraising and her path, as you're pointing out, is tenuous, but it's sort of a uh, necessary but not sufficient. She needs the money to compete, but obviously that's not all she needs. Right. Um, She was actually with us yesterday and said that if the former presidential candidate can't pull 50% or more, if he's losing 50% of the vote, that that's not great for the top of the ticket. It's not really good for an incumbent not to get 43% of the vote. He has been literally unhinged ever since I got 43% of the vote in New Hampshire. And so I know what we're doing is working. That's certainly been something um, that that the Koch network has pointed out too. Koch, K-O-C-H, not C-O-K-E. But the Koch network looks like they are refocusing a lot of their money on the Senate races at this point. How important, how key is that? The Koch network uh, this past weekend in in, uh, in, near uh, Southern California had hundreds of their donors out to their um, kind of semi-annual retreat. And uh, they told them that uh, basically the obvious, that it's, it's an uphill climb for Nikki Haley. Um, they said that they are focusing on preventing a Democratic trifecta. They don't want Democrats to take the White House, the House, and the Senate. And they believe in their internal polling that, that Trump is a loser, that Trump is likely to lose to Joe Biden in a rematch. Uh, obviously, that internal polling that Koch is referring to is it's somewhat of a discrepancy with public polling, which shows Trump to be pretty competitive. But their argument is, if Nikki Haley is not the nominee, then we need to prepare, you know, the House and the Senate uh, to make sure that they're not taken over by Democrats as well. Um, so I don't necessarily think they're, necess- they're refocusing their money. I think they're just reading their own polls, seeing Trump as uncompetitive at the top of the ticket and saying, hey, we don't want Democrats to run Washington entirely. How can we focus on achieving split government? But, you know, look, no, no, no one that supports Nikki Haley at this point honestly thinks that she has a strong chance of being the nominee. That was just ludicrous at this point. But is it 10%, 20%, 30%? Reason people can disagree, but it's certainly not 51%, and that's why people have to prepare for down ballot. You look at um, the situation this year where most voters say that they don't want either former President 
Trump or President Biden uh, yep. to be on the ballot this time around. And you'll have people from both sides saying, look, something could happen. Uh, one or both of these guys could get knocked out or, or decide to bow out one, one way or another. Is her staying in it through Super Tuesday kind of a Hail Mary pass thinking if the lawsuits catch up with him, if the indictments catch up with him, if there's something weird that happens, maybe if she's still standing, she would be the nominee? Sure. There's an element of, of unpredictability, obviously, with what's going to happen between you know, Trump, uh, quote unquote, securing the nomination and Trump actually accepting the Republican uh, nomination at the convention. But, you know, I think at that point, it's I don't know if it's really going to matter who's technically the other candidate in the race, uh, if there are any other candidates in the race to begin with. That would be such an unprecedented situation. I think, you know, it's going to come down to who has support of, of kind of party leaders, who has support of, of, of President Trump. Um, I don't necessarily think that the kind of the bank shot strategy here that where you're hoping for uh, kind of something crazy to happen really necessarily means you stay in the race. I think at that point, anything would be on the table. The president, former President Trump, has said that he is going to shut out anybody who continues to support, support Nikki Haley at this point. And yeah. I, I just wonder, with these billionaires holding this fundraiser today, um, what the future for, for businesses under either one of these administrations. There hasn't been a really tight relationship between most of the business community and the, the Oval Office for quite a while, it feels like. There's not a natural home um, in, in either of these parties. What, what does that mean? Yeah, you know, one of the hosts of uh, tonight's event, Cliff Asnes, who was, on, who was on the screen a second ago, um, you know, is, is a major Haley supporter, I believe has donated millions to her super PAC. Uh, and, you know, he saw the uh, the truth, truth social post that Trump put up the other day where he basically said these people are going to be, quote unquote, barred permanently um, from from the MAGA movement and from the Oval Office. And Cliff said, you know, on Twitter that, uh, you know, he was going to donate more money to, to Nikki Haley uh, because he wanted to be barred permanently. Uh, uh, look, I mean, it's no surprise that, you know, the billionaires of the Republican Party are not uh, in touch with the base voter of the Republican Party. But what's clear, you know, has been clear since 2016, since Trump sort of became uh, a candidate, it, despite not having all that support from those wealthy Wall Street types, is that these people don't really matter as much as we think they do. I know that's, you know, somewhat depressing for people who cover these people to, to say and to hear. Um, but no, I hear Cliff Asin <laughs> said you know, he was doing this to, to support Nikki Haley to save the country. And I'm sure he genuinely believes that. And he, he just actually interestingly described his bet on Haley as akin to venture capital that had a high chance of waste, but a, a low chance and a non-zero chance of saving the country. That's what these people genuinely believe. You know, the voters of Iowa and New Hampshire disagree, and, and they're ultimately who decides, <laughs> not, not Wall Street. I, honestly, the billionaire class has never been very effective at picking the next winner. It's been a long time, at least, where their choices early on don't really make their way in. Maybe just proof that just because you're really good at one thing doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a master of the universe in a different field. This is not this is not the era of Bush or, or Romney, you know, who were sort of establishment favorites who, you know, Romney, of course, kind of came from the, from this uh, economic stratosphere. Um, uh, and, and Trump has sort of showed these people's uh, lack of power. And it's been uh, humbling, I think, for lots of people that I cover. Yeah, maybe we shouldn't call them masters of the universe, Ma masters of one field, potentially. Teddy, yeah. thank you. You bet. 
Coming up next on Squawk Pod, this week's two-day Fed meeting. What the markets are banking on, what the economists are banking on, and how to see the bigger picture with Allianz Chief Economic Advisor, Mohamed Alarian. We've become a single-issue market. Our focus on the Fed and our focus on the Fed loosening liquidity conditions has allowed us to sideline all sorts of other issues. Now is the time to accelerate innovation. T-Mobile for Business is powering Formula One Las Vegas Grand Prix operations and epic fan experiences with secure, reliable 5G connectivity. Because an event this big and this fast deserves a network that can set the pace. See what our 5G advanced network solutions can do for your business at tmobile.com slash now. View 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Tuesday and Wednesday of this week, the Federal Reserve meets in Washington to decide on its next move for interest rates. Cut them again? Hike? Hold? The markets seem to be betting on an aggressive Fed policy. Rate cuts coming, probably not this meeting, but sooner rather than later. Economists and Fed experts surveyed by CNBC, though, they're expecting fewer cuts starting later. In CNBC's latest Fed survey, just 9% of respondents expect a cut in March. And it's not until June that a majority of respondents expect cuts at all. Last week, if you were following along, we saw PCE data, the Fed's preferred inflation metric, that showed a cooling pace of inflation. We also saw GDP for the last quarter of 2024 beat expectations. It paints a pretty decent picture of the U.S. economy, but abroad, it's a little different. Today, the EU reported data painting a bleaker picture. The Eurozone narrowly missed a recession in the last quarter of 2024. And Germany, the bloc's largest economy and the third largest economy in the world, remember, is now on the brink of recession. With all this in mind, let's get back to Becky Quick and Mike Santoli. Let's bring in Mohamed El Arian, Chief Economic Advisor at Allianz and President of Queens College at Cambridge University. I'd love, though, your take, bigger picture. I mean, as the federal official, Federal Reserve officials get together today, they have to be feeling pretty good in general. I mean, the economy is holding up better than they had anticipated. Inflation has come down even a bit faster than they projected. And even if we're talking about when they might start rate cuts, it's in the guise of normalization and, and it's not an emergency. So how are you thinking about their job this week? So you're absolutely right. They're going to welcome the reduction in inflation. They're going to take a lot of comfort from the fact that it didn't come at the cost of growth. The U.S. economy has been exceptional, and the Eurozone data today reminded us of this U.S. exceptionalism. They're also going to say that their job is not done, and they're going to maintain optionality. Um, And most importantly, I think they are not going to validate the notion that rates are coming down in March. They're going to keep their options wide open. That's where they're going to end up. That's the committee. What's interesting is what the chair is going to do during the press conference, because we've seen in the past, the chair does sometimes diverge from the committee. Um, So it'd be really 
important to listen very carefully to what the chair says. For sure, Mohammed. I, although I do think that the market, I mean, to the degree to which we want to, you know, make something out of this uh, perceived gap between how the market is positioned about rate cuts and, and what the Fed has been saying. I mean, if you just stack up all the things we know about how the Fed has said it will respond, uh, you know, you have a five and three eighths Fed funds rate right now. Inflation is way below that. They've talked about how that represents a restrictive policy, even if we're not really seeing it in the economy. Uh, you know, we've had this six-month average a lot of people are seizing on of, of core inflation uh, being very close to target. And so all those things put together, and, you know, Powell has said, yeah, of course we're going to be cutting before we get to target. So I, I guess the question is um, just exactly how much work do you think he'll, he'll even try to do to, to talk the market in a different direction? It's hard to tell. Predicting him um, even within the same press conference is tricky. So, so it's, it's hard to tell. But you're absolutely right. They have the scope to cut rates. I don't think it's going to be as, as aggressive as the market thinks. Why is that important? Yes, we all end up at the same destination in 2025. But remember, we've become a single issue market. Our focus on the Fed and our focus on the Fed loosening liquidity conditions has allowed us to sideline all sorts of other issues, including geopolitical risk. So where this comes in is, is can we continue to rely on our focus solely on the Fed to sideline all these other issues that are mounting on the sideline? You know, I don't. Are we really a single issue, though, in terms of the pacing of the Fed rate cuts? Because, uh, you know, we were at, uh, I don't know, close to 90 percent for a March rate cut right after the, the previous uh, Powell press conference. We're down to a 50 50. Risk markets have done well since then. The economy hasn't missed a beat. In fact, if anything, we're getting the impression that the economy has been a lot more resistant to higher rates. I mean, look, investment grade yields, they've had their effect. They're above 5%. They were nothing a while ago. You would think this would start to bite, but it's not really doing it just yet. Right. And there's this big debate, Mike, between flow versus stock. If you focus on the flow, then you would be incredibly optimistic about both the economy and the markets. Inflation is coming down, interest rates are coming down, affordability for consumers is going up, corporates can refinance much more easily, ample liquidity. The flow side is really encouraging. We just have to manage the stock. And the stock is first, the lagged effect of the rate hikes. Second, the fact that you have certain asset classes that are slower moving in acknowledging that change circumstances. Think of commercial real estate as one, but there's others. And then third, we have a maturity wall um, coming up on the corporate side. So what we're going to see this year is this tug of war between favorable flows and challenging stock. And, and that's how it's, go it's going to work out. Now, if, if you can bet on the Fed accommodating the situation, which is what the market is saying, the market is saying they're going to cut early, aggressively, so we're going to be able to deal with the stock. If you can bet on that, then your outlook becomes much more positive than otherwise. Yeah, we will see uh, exactly how they uh, how they catch it. Mohammed, uh, always good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Mike, thank you. All right, see you soon. Today. Thank you. That's the podcast for today. Thank you for listening, as always. For more on the Fed this week and more on the biggest headlines in business and sometimes politics, come right back here to Squawk Pod.
please don't forget to hit that follow button wherever you're listening now. And if you're listening on Apple, give us a rating and a review while you're at it. Here on the pod, we distill the best of our three-hour TV show Squawk Box, which is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC starting at 6 a.m. Eastern. We'll meet you right back here tomorrow. Have a great day. We are clear. Thanks, guys. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.